You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello, and welcome to Domecast, the News and Observer's political podcast. Uh, I'm Jordan Schrader, and I'm here with Don Vaughn, Elizabeth Thompson, Will, and Will Doran. Uh, and we're coming back to you after kind of a long absence. Uh, it's been a little hard to fit in a Domecast. Plus, we've had some technology problems, which I think we've uh, maybe now solved with a big shout out uh, to Matt Riley, who has uh, been our uh, savior in terms of uh, equipment, audio equipment. So if uh, you can hear us a lot better than you have been able to on past podcasts, you can thank Matt. Uh, and he's here with us now. So um, we'll uh, launch into it. And um, there's a lot to catch up on. But of course, this week, everything's been dominated by the fallout um, from the mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton. And um, we've seen some proposals in the legislature responding to that. Um, so first of all, on guns, um, Don, what's been proposed uh, for gun laws and uh, why is why are these bills not moving ahead? So um, Democrats are trying to get two um, gun regulation bills out of committee through something called a discharge petition, which uh, if you have enough signatures, it forces it, um, instead of going actually being heard and discussed in committee, it forces it to the floor. Um, and one of them is sort of a catch-all of um, gun laws. And the other is more specific, um, 454, House Bill 454, about um, extremist protection orders. Um, and so they filed discharge, um, Marsha Moray and others filed discharge petitions for both, and they would need 61 signatures to move it to the floor, which would mean every single Democrat and some Republicans too. And they're in the 40s, the last time I checked, a few days after um, everybody signed it. So that probably isn't going to happen. And it's um, all Democrats who've signed this? No Republicans have signed on to this at, at this point? From what I saw, it's kind of an old school process where it's just a piece of paper in the clerk's office. And they don't always print their name by it. But um, I asked one of the clerks that had been there for a while how they figure it out. And they just end up learning their signatures. But some of them they had write it and print next to it. Um, and that same uh, person in the clerk's office who's worked there over 20 years, she said that um, discharge petitions haven't worked in the modern era, um, so at least that long. So it's, it's not something that it's, it's a tool that they can use to, to try, but um, it's really successful. Um, so really what it is is, um, I think, a political move to get people to talk about it. Um, when the two gun bills, there's a press conference and... The UNC Charlotte shooting survivor, Drew Pascaro, talked during it and showed his um, bullet wound and surgery scars, uh, which was compelling to a lot of people. Um, so that's that's one point of, of those two bills. As far as if they actually have a chance of going through, probably not. Um, the um, Republicans want the committee process. They're very much about all of their procedures and rules over there when uh, especially when it suits what they want to accomplish or not accomplish um, so but it did get extra attention this week and part of it was them talking about wanting to do something and just that phrase do something and people saying after a mass shooting why isn't anybody doing something and so that was something to do um, 
And then another discharge petition was filed this week um, by a Charlotte lawmaker for a hate crimes bill, which the bill itself doesn't seem that controversial. Um, the signatures, when I looked the day after it was filed, it was still in the 30s. So that may not happen. Um, and I didn't hear back from the Republicans that chair the committee um, whether or not they would be willing to actually talk about it. And again, that all goes to how long is the session going to be, which is related to the budget standoff, which I can talk more about later. What, what are the gun bills that are going through right now? You mentioned extreme risk protection orders, and then there's also some ideas um, for different kinds of background checks um, than we have right now. Um, so what do we have now in, in North Carolina, and, and what would change if, if these went through? So Will did a story last year about some like overall gun law. So if you want to chime in with some of that, and I can talk about what, what these are. Stronger. Sure. Yeah. So um, as far as basically the kind of, I think, a, a big question in a lot of people's minds, basically, when can the authorities come in and seize somebody's guns? Uh, the answer is right now in North Carolina, it's pretty much limited only to domestic violence. Um, if you know you're accused of being a domestic abuser, you can the the court can order you to turn over your guns. They're not going to send cops out to your house to take your guns, so you just have to kind of promise that you actually are giving up all of your guns. Um, and you know maybe you are, maybe you're not. There's not really any check on that. Um, and then there's also no other uh, scenarios basically in which you can be ordered to give up your guns. So you know if you uh, you know, post uh, some sort of, you know, threatening message online, you know, kind of not necessarily directly threatening a mass shooting, but kind of making some hints at it or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that isn't something that would be able to let the state come in and take your guns away. And I think that there's a push um, to change that, basically, and to mm -hmm. to create these what what these are called the extreme risk protective orders. Basically, when someone is deemed to be an extreme risk to the community, you can take their guns, and you know that you know what an extreme risk is could be vaguely defined. It could be specifically defined. You know, there's obviously a lot of a lot of wiggle room in there. Um, I think that's what the the gun rights um, groups and advocates are worried about is, you know, how would you, the due process, and that's what Republicans are saying. Marsha Moray described it as a red flag bill. Um, there are kind of different types of red flag bills. This one, um, again, like what Will was saying about threat to the community, but also to themselves. Um, and it would help in situations of um, somebody threatening suicide. Um, and so they feel like that's that's also something that it would help um, as far as personal safety is and, and the safety of others. Um, a number of other states have these, and it's even been talked about at the federal level. Um, so um, what else is, is on the table? There's, there's another bill that would sort of be a grab bag of gun laws, it sounds like, including some background checks and different, different background checks than we have now. Um, so what's, what's going on there? So the um, gun rights... Uh, group grassroots and seed does called it a um, laundry list of items. I can't remember the exact quote, um, but uh, sort of a catch-all of, of of everything. And that has um, one of the things that I thought was interesting. It has um, 
requiring gun owners to carry firearm liability insurance, which um, there's insurance for a lot of things you have to have, but not for not for firearms. Uh, it would also require a 72-hour waiting period for um, gun purchases, prohibit sales or possession of bump stocks, require safe storage of guns, um, require lost or stolen guns be reported also. So it is a lot of things. It's an omnibus bill, really. Um, and the supporters of it, including Representative Clark, said that, you know, they just want to talk about it, whether or not everything in there passes or not, they just want to talk about it. And that's what the point of a discharge petition is. It's if you feel that your bill hasn't gotten out of committee or even been discussed in committee and you want people to at least debate it. Um, so that's what they're calling for. But it's um, at this point, it's unlikely that that's going to happen. Yeah, like you said, Don, if there's, you know, someone who has been in the clerk's office handling these sorts of petitions for the last two plus decades and she's, you know, never seen it work, <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't bode well for, for supporters of these of these bills uh, that they're actually going to move forward. And it looks like right now they're pretty much just stuck in committee. So, One place that you cannot bring a gun is the legislative building. And uh, that, uh, was viol- that law was violated uh, uh, allegedly this last week. So what happened? Somebody brought a gun into the into So the a man, I mean, they have security. If you've ever been to the legislative building, you have to, um, you know, put all your stuff on the conveyor belt and walk through the metal detector like at the airport. Pretty new security within the last year. They didn't um, used to have, you know, metal detectors. But, you know, with the news of the shootings around the country and everything, we decided it was... Well, it seemed to be pretty helpful when a man came in with a gun and two um, full magazines um, and was detained. And it turned out, so on on the House floor this week, um, Representative Joe John said that that same man had an appointment um, with him at his office and was a no-show. And he found out later um, that was that was the person. Um, so they are thinking they have some. There was an, a brief discussion on the floor. A few days later, with another um, representative, I think it was Holly, asking about just general security, and Speaker Moore said that's maybe a conversation you shouldn't have on the floor, and that there are things in place for them if they're concerned about their own safety. But um, big shout out to the General Assembly Police and Security for stopping that, because um, we all we also work there. Do we know anything about what the what the police? think happened there? I mean, was this guy targeting one of the legislators? Did he just forget about this gun? I don't know at that point. No. That's a good question. Yeah. That'll be interesting to find out what, what the police think happened. And of course, um, Don, you mentioned the hate crimes bill um, and how there's a discharge petition for this as well. Um, what would the hate crimes bill do? Um, because obviously this comes in not only after the El Paso um, shooting, um, which is, is being investigated as a hate crime, but also um, a few years after the infamous murders in Chapel Hill um, that a lot of people uh, called for hate crimes laws in North Carolina after um, several Muslims were killed in, uh, in, in, at UNC. Um, so what would this bill do? Well, they were, it was in Chapel Hill, but they were, um, they were grad students, Excuse UNC, me, right? Not, not UNC. Uh, so the Hate Crimes Prevention Act would do a couple things. It would make, um, a hate crime a felony in North Carolina, which it currently isn't. Um, it would require the State Bureau of Investigation to create and maintain a hate crimes database. And it would have training for attorneys, uh, about prosecuting hate crimes and also for law enforcement. Um, and so it's really... 
um, you know, kind of, a, I guess, a harder crime bill and um, aimed at, again, doing something. And it was uh, Representative Majid, who's from Charlotte, saying that, um, it's, you know, it's, it's, again, with the discharge petition, it was something that he filed in March and it's just been sitting there. And, you know, it's a way to get people to talk about it. And unlike those two gun bills, you know, he didn't file it with fanfare. He mentioned he was going to do it on the floor and then he did it. And it wasn't, there was no press conference. There um, were no survivors talking about it. It was just, um, he wanted to do something. And so he did that. And at least 30 people had signed it within about 12 hours or so. Um, and Representative Lofton, who's also from um, Mecklenburg, um, he was one of the people that signed it. And I talked to him and he said that, you know, of course, their prayers go out to families of victims with these shootings and everything. But he said that lawmakers have a responsibility to do more than that. And this was something that that they could do. Um, but again, it's, you know, still a bill that's sort of stalled out at this point. Um, it could show up in another way. Um, but that's that's where it stands this week. So these three discharge petitions are the only ones of this um, of this session. Um, but again, it's a tactic to try to get um, attention or support and, and get people talking about an issue again. Of course, a lot of these issues are also big issues at the federal level. And you can go to newsobserver.com to read some of our coverage um, out of D.C., um, including we asked every member of Congress about uh, what should be done about hate crimes. And uh, many of them responded, and we've uh, compiled their responses uh, in a story that you can find on our website. Um, so the other big news this week, uh, Elizabeth, is that the state health plan controversy came to a head. Um, state Treasurer Dale Falwell has been trying to change the way that hospitals and other health care providers are paid uh, for their services when they treat state employees and other people on the state health plan. Um, and uh, it sort of came to somewhat of a resolution, at least a temporary resolution this week. So um, what's the latest? Yeah, so the treasurer was trying to institute a program called the Clear Pricing Project, which would take away the power from a third-party administration, which would be uh, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and C, and give the power to the government to set a rate that they would pay hospitals and other healthcare providers for the state health plan. This was a big problem to all of the large hospitals in the state. There are about 10 large hospital businesses in the state, such as the UNC hospitals, Duke Health, Wake Med, all of those hospitals. Um, they claimed that because there are things that the state health plan covers that aren't necessarily just the members of the program, such as 24-hour emergency rooms and patients who can't afford to pay for their health care, that this clear pricing project would be unfair to them and make it impossible them, for them to pay for things like these 24-hour emergency rooms and people who can't afford for to pay for their, their, um, their care. So on Thursday, the treasurer sent out an announcement that while there were a good group of healthcare providers that signed onto the program, um, they would be allowing Blue Cross Blue Shield to be the administrator for these um, for these hospitals that hadn't signed on to the program. They cited 
um, concerns for members of the state health program, pregnant women who are worried about being able to be covered by their health insurance um, by an in-network provider, which is what this had to deal with, uh, being in the network, um, which when you're covered under a program that um, is in your network in the state health plan, you pay less than for an out-of-network out program. You pay tons of money for out-of-network providers. Um, so it was because of those concerns for state health employees that they decided to kind of pull out of the clear pricing project. Um, I talked to the executive director of CNEC, and he said that while they were disappointed, they are still going to fight to eventually have something like the clear pricing project um, in the future. And CNIC is the uh, State Employees Association. So state employees um, would have saved money mm -hmm. if this had gone yeah. through, right? Um, and yet, because it was uh, at this impasse, so many of them would have ended up being out of network with all the places that they normally go for health care. Mm -hmm. um, so does this mean that now state employees don't have to worry about being out of network. They're all going to be in network with all their usual providers. They don't need to change yeah. providers. Basically, every single network that we talked to, such as Duke Health, um, they said that they're, they'll continue to be on the plan as they used to be um, now that it's going to be basically the same, the same status quo that it used to be for the hospitals. But there definitely was concern um, even yesterday for members of the state health plan that they didn't know who was going to be able to provide them coverage in the next couple months. And that was a very large um, cause for concern for those people. All right. And so this sort of punts it off into the future. But um, with all the uh, problems, the financial problems that the treasurer talks about the health plan having, um, I assume there's some kind of a a reckoning that's still going to have to come at some point down the road on this, so um, we'll stay tuned. Um, well, you've been writing about the Board of Elections, and uh, they've had three and soon four uh, chairmen under uh, Governor Roy Cooper, um, and maybe even more than that. I can't keep track of how many chairmen they've had. Um, yeah, they've had three just in 2019. Just in 2019. Okay, yeah. So why are they uh, revol the revolving door of, of chairman? Well, it's it's been a series of issues. Uh, most recently, uh, uh, Bob Cordell, the most recent uh, chairman of the Board of Elections, stepped down um, a couple weeks ago. He had told an appropriate, inappropriate joke at a big conference of local county level elections leaders from all across the state um, that uh, was meeting in Cary. And he kind of opened that meeting with a, a lewd joke um, about women and cows and sex that I'm not going to repeat on this podcast because I will probably get us in trouble with the FCC. Um, and We're not on the radio, so <laughs> but, but still, whatever. please don't anyway. <laughs> Point is, you could probably look it up if you really <laughs> curious. It was bad enough um, that uh, he felt the need to step down, um, and uh, actually, the governor's office announced that he was resigning before he announced that he was resigning. So, I think the decision might have even been made above his head. We don't know that for sure. But what was he thinking, telling this in front of hundreds of people? Did he not think this was going to get out? He, we haven't heard from him, have we? I, he's given a couple statements. Yeah. Uh, no, no one's done an interview with him. He said originally when the joke was first reported on um, by our colleagues over at WRAL that he thought that the joke actually kind of went over well and he saw some people in the audience laughing. 
he later apologized that he was, you know, sincerely sorry for anyone who's offended by it. Um, and just kind of felt that it was necessary to step out to just kind of nip the controversy in the bud, and not have it dock the board. Um, so, and it's the kind of thing I, I had people reaching out to me saying, you know, this is the kind of thing that we used to hear, you know, in state government meetings 30 or 40 years ago, mm-hmm. but not anymore. Like times have changed. There are more women at the table now. <laughs> yeah. There's more women at the table. There are, you know, there, there weren't TV cameras at this meeting, but you know, in places there are TV cameras and, you know, it's just kind of a, you know, society's changing. You can't just tell these sexist jokes because it's not just a good old boys club anymore. Mm-hmm. It's every, every part of society is involved in government. Like Don says, <laughs> There's... and so he stepped aside. So that has le- left us with kind of a, for, for at least a little while with a vacuum at the board, which has been dealing with some really big issues. Actually, this was a, um, just from a kind of managerial standpoint, a very inconvenient time for the board to be without a chairman. Um, they are in the middle of certifying new elections machines that will be able to be used in North Carolina for the 2020 elections and beyond. Um, and it's really a big deal for Charlotte and Greensboro. Um, the machines that they use are going to go out of certification at the end of this year. Um, so if you know, the state needs to do something to basically figure out how we're going to replace those machines. The machines that we use here in the Triangle, if we have Triangle listeners uh, for the podcast, those aren't changing. We're still going to probably be voting with paper ballots, sticking them into the little Scantron scanning machines that we have. That's in all likelihood not going to change. Uh, But there's some touchscreen machines that are in use in places like Charlotte and Greensboro and some other counties around the state. Those are going away, need to get replaced somehow. There's been a big controversy at the board over how exactly the state wants to replace those, um, what types of machines you want to use. Really, it boils down to having a paper record and a paper ballot and something that the voter can see to confirm that what they thought they voted for on the machine is actually how the machine counted their vote. There's been some concerns uh, about Russian hacking. Um, We know now that as a fact, basically, from the Mueller report that the Russians targeted every state around the country in the 2016 elections. Um, There have been reports that they successfully hacked some counties in Florida. Unsure if they changed any votes there, but it appears to have been a successful hack. The federal government is investigating whether or not the Russians uh, hacked into the Durham County uh, elections uh, machinery in 2016. Um, no one thinks that they, even if it was a hack, that they would have been able to change any votes. Uh, they didn't. We don't think, at least, that they got into the actual vote counting software. They just got into the software that basically uh, checks you in whenever you show up to the poll and get your ballot and make sure that you know people aren't voting twice or that you're voting in the right precinct, things like that. Um, and Durham kind of did have some issues with that software on election day. It was down. Uh, for a long time caused a lot of confusion. A uh, judge had to step in and specially order polling places to be open for longer, but we're still not sure, you know, how many people showed up to the polls in the morning to find out that the, you know, machines were broken and then, you know, were never able to go back and vote later that night. So And Durham has said they don't think they were hacked. Right. The the state and the county both think that it was probably just human error that polling workers in Durham made some mistakes. Um, and Durham has historically had some issues with elections management in the past, which I think is maybe one of the reasons why people were so quick to point to human error. The returns but, always come in late. Yeah. But 
um, the state government, the state board of elections, lacks the technical equipment necessary to do a full, uh, basically what they call a cyber forensic analysis, to basically like take these machines and look at them and say concretely whether or not they were hacked. Um, we just don't have that capability in the state. We need the federal government to do that. And we've been asking the federal government to do it for two years, and they just were refusing. And no one has ever really told me why they refused. That's kind of an unanswered question. But earlier this summer, they stopped refusing and stepped in and started an investigation after the state had been asking for a couple of years. So that is underway now. We'll know soon. In the meantime, there's this whole vote on you know these new machines, you know how strict we want to be with the rules for the types of paper printouts that the machines have to produce for the voters to look at. Because um, a couple of them, you can see exactly how you voted, and then one of them just has a barcode. Correct. Yeah, and you know the average person can't just look at a barcode and know like, oh, this barcode means I voted for these seventeen politicians instead of you know these fifteen that I meant to vote for and these two that I didn't want to vote for. Um, you know, you usually can't just look at a barcode and figure that out unless you spend way too much time memorizing barcodes, which I don't think anybody does. Um, and so there's this kind of debate, and really the board was split. Um, it was 3-2 one way, but then somebody wanted to change their vote. It was going to be 3-2 the other way. But then when Cordell resigned, it turned into basically just a 2-2 tie. Um, so we have basically two big events coming up with the Board of Elections and this whole debate over these voting machines. Uh, next Tuesday, August was that the 13th, I think, um, the state board is going to meet to choose who is going to be the next chair to replace uh, Coral Cooper did nominate uh, Damon Sarcosta uh, to fill in the empty spot on the board, and the board will, and he's a Democrat, the board will probably end up choosing one of the Democrats to be the chair. Uh, we don't know who that is right now. Currently, the temporary chair is Stella Anderson, who's a App State University professor. Um, uh, so we'll figure out on Tuesday who the new chair is going to be. Is this a partisan issue over the um, ballots? Or um, is this because it's now going to be majority Democrat? Does that come down one way or it's another? It's fluctuated back and forth. Like I said, the votes keep changing. Um, the The initial vote to kind of go for the strict rules, uh, have very strict procedures and rules about these paper ballots, was a bipartisan vote uh, with uh, Bob Cordell, who is a Democrat, opposing it along with one of the Republicans on the board. It's a five-member board. There's three Democrats, two Republicans. And so it had been a three-to-two split with... Democrats and Republicans on both sides. Uh, but now with one of the Republicans who was originally for the stricter rules, changed his mind, wanted to be uh, for basically the side of just expediting the process. Because the other thing that people are worried about is like, we are coming up really close to the 2020 elections. I mean, the primaries are in seven months. And it's going to, you know, it's not like the board certifies these machines and then you know, snap your fingers, they suddenly appear in the counties. You know, the counties will have to vote on what they want to buy. There's a whole process to test them and get them set up and calibrate and all that. So the county's really feeling a time crunch. Um, and basically right now you have the two Democrats on the board saying we want to slow it down and make sure that we have really strict procedures. And you have the two Republicans on the board saying, no, we need to just go ahead and get something done so that these counties aren't left just freaking out at the last minute here. And, you know, people having to work over Christmas and all, you know, all sorts of stuff. Uh, to, to get it in place in time for the elections in 2020. Um, 
So that's kind of where it stands now. We don't know how um, how Damon Costa feels about this issue. He hasn't been on the record yet about it because he hasn't taken any votes on the board. Um, uh, Tuesday's meeting to elect the chair will be his first. And then uh, later this month, August 23rd, is when they're scheduled to basically come back again to talk about voting machines more. So it'll be a lot more voting machine news and uh, who knows when it'll end. But <laughs> Well, the board has been changing and for a while there wasn't even a board and now um, we have a full board of elections. Um, but meanwhile, it seems like the staff has been uh, over at the board of elections has been kind of plugging along doing the nitty gritty of elections regulation because we saw that they are auditing um, First of all, Governor Roy Cooper, there's an audit underway of his campaign finances. And then um, Dan Forrest, his uh, opponent, one of his two uh, Republican opponents for governor in 2020. And the audit of Forrest came out uh, yesterday, I guess. Thursday. Thursday. Yeah. So um, what did that reveal? Um, the uh, Basically, the bottom line is the the Forrest campaign audit ended with him having to forfeit around $15,000 in campaign contributions. Um, and I should preface that by saying, uh, you know, Forrest, you know, ha- has over a million dollars on hand. So that's $15,000 is a pretty small chunk of change, but it's not nothing. You know, I mean, you know, there's a reason politicians are always out raising money. Every dollar counts. And uh, he basically got to this audit, found that he had $15,000 worth of contributions that were some sort of violation. Um, and mostly they were... Uh, violations basically on the donors parts um some donors gave more than they were legally allowed to uh some of the money came from federal groups that weren't actually allowed to get involved in north carolina politics uh they're not properly registered with the state so they can't uh, pass around money basically um and so that's basically where uh where his uh campaigns issues came from on that um and like you said uh when I report on that, uh, ask the State Board of Elections as well, like, you know, hey, when are we going to see one of these on Roy Cooper? Um, and they told us that that is in the process um, and could probably be expected sometime soon. Um, you know, I take that to mean before the elections. Uh, <laughs> I, I would assume that they would rather get it out uh, sooner rather than later so that they're not seen as trying to influence the election or anything like that. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, the... The board's investigators are plugging along. You know, we saw, uh, what, early August, I think it was, uh, the charges finally came down against uh, McCray Dallas and uh, some of his associates in the uh, NC9 uh, absentee ballot fraud thing. They had previously been charged, I think, for fraud from 2016, uh, but then they were also charged again for 2018, and that was... Basically, all those charges were on based on evidence and investigations from the board of elections. So, there might have been some political shakeups going on at the board, but the the staff and there's also been shakeups at the staff. There's a new director over there, um, but you know the outside the very top levels, people have just kind of been plugging along, and we'll see what future investigations and audits reveal. Okay. Well, before we go to Headliner of the Week this week, I want to put in a a plug for our daily briefing that the News and Observer does. So if you like Domecast uh, and you want to also get your other News and Observer stories in audio form, then you might want to get our daily briefing on either uh, your podcast app on your phone, uh, where you can find it, 
or on Alexa or on Google Home or pretty much on any of those uh, smart devices. But you can also find it at newsobserver.com slash listen. Uh, it's a three-minute update, and you'll get the weather and five or six stories that are on the newsobserver.com uh, that day uh, and probably in the print edition as well. Um, but it's a quick summary that will kind of keep you on top of what's happening if you don't have time to, to read the paper or listen to us uh, go on and on about these political stories on Domecast. Um, but you can uh, get started in the, and I probably don't need to go into all the ways that you get all these things. It's different from all the devices. But if you go to newsobserver.com slash listen, you should be able to um, find all the ways you can get this. Um, and so now we'll take a break and come back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. Headliner of the Week. 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 Spot. Welcome back to Domecast, and now it's time for everybody's favorite segment, Headliner of the Week, where if you've forgotten because we've been uh, uh, out of uh, Domecast lately, it's the time when everybody picks the most important or influential or interesting person, place, or thing in this week's political news. Uh, so, Don Vaughn, you're up first. Who's your Headliner of the Week? Our, it's Elizabeth Thompson, our upcoming political intern, who we, uh, those Domecasts that didn't come to um, final publication, as it were, <laughs> um, did include her, but... Um, the lost Domecast. So, assuming they were amazing. One, they were really the best, the best Domecast yeah. ever, um, you know, special edition, <laughs> uh, who, anyway, um, Elizabeth is a UNC student who um, has done a really great job um, with a lot of fact checks and other things this, uh, this summer and had some good insights on what the legislative building is like and how it's designed, if you want to share those. That is my headliner of the week. Okay, well, I'll, <laughs> I'll turn what's, it over to you. Other, other than the uh, architecture of the building, what, what's, the, what's been the highlight of your internship here for the last three months? Well, I would say that with the fact checks, we do have the privilege of being able to talk to so many smart people who know everything, um, depending on what the subject is. I've been really fortunate to become an expert myself on a range of very complicated political subjects in North Carolina. If you are ever curious about gerrymandering, <laughs> the state health plan, <laughs> Medicaid expansion, there's a fact check for that. And You're going to impress your friends at all the college parties back <laughs> uh, at UNC. Yeah, so, so what do you know about Medicaid expansion? But So, yeah, so I, that's probably been the best part of my internship is I've had the the privilege of being able to talk to so many intelligent people and get to understand very complicated subjects that I would say probably most people outside of the legislative building do not understand at all. So that has been definitely the the highlight of my internship, and I'm definitely going to miss it. Look at those stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to miss you. You've done some awesome work around here. And um, so Elizabeth Thompson is in the hat for Headliner of the Week. And now, Elizabeth Thompson, who's your Headliner of the Week? <laughs> so my Headliner of the Week is the legislative building itself, which if you've never been inside of it, makes no sense. <laughs> and I, after my experience of three months working with, with the government politics and reporting there, I've realized that it is kind of built like the government itself. 
in the the way that the labyrinth of the legislature goes is the way the government goes. It's so hard to find the bathroom in the legislative building. It's so hard to talk to your own leaders. It's hard to lobby for things that you want to be represented in government. It's hard to even find people in places in the legislative building. So that is my headliner of the week. If you haven't been to the legislative building, it's kind of cool. Check it out. Just please don't bring a gun, as we've seen. It's bad. And try the squash. It has an, an 80s mall hotel lobby vibe. It does. It seems like an, <laughs> an 80s really movie that's kind of one of those like yuppie movies where this person comes in, they're really excited about government, and then they get disillusioned in the end. That wasn't me, though. I th- it's great. <laughs> Every corner of the legislative building kind of looks the same, so oh, yeah. everybody just sort of wanders around there uh, until they find what they're. Whatever Even they're like if for. you want to go down the stairs, it just looks like an office door it does. or a bathroom door, but it's actually the stairs. So, and not all the stairs go to the same places. Yeah, Don also has had a, a fairly recent experience of getting to know the legislative building, so um, you've also had that pleasure of trying to figure yes. out figure it out too. Um, it's, it's not easy. Um, well, what's your, as a, um, relative veteran of covering the legislative building, what's the, what are your pro tips? Um, I bring a ball of string mm-hmm. like Theseus <laughs> in the labyrinth, mm-hmm. uh, so that I can follow back, uh, to the exit. Mm-hmm. Good. Good. Yeah. Somebody told me once the press conference room is either in one of like the courtyards that does or doesn't have water, but I honestly can't remember which one it is. <laughs> but I know which stairs to take to get there, mm-hmm. pretty much, from the actual press room, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bunch of squares. If you walk around enough, you can find it. <laughs> so you can find stuff. Just trial and error. And this year, uh, of course, they moved our press room downstairs, so it's much harder to get to everything. But that's next to the cafeteria. Oh, yes, true. Which has every chicken dish is usually pretty good and apparently some other things. Yeah, fried squash. The fried squash is good. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so the legislative building uh, in the hat for headliner of the week as well. Will Doran, who's your headliner? Well, Jordan, I'm going to have to go with our new audio equipment. I think this is going to be the talk of the town this whole week. Uh, How good Domecast sounds. Uh, Longtime listeners know that the quality kind of dropped off there at the end. And for a while, we just kind of gave up on it. But we are back better than ever. And it's just going to sparkle in your ears every time you listen to it. You can hear a pin drop with this thing. It's like we're right next to you, wherever you are. Yes. Telling you all about the legislative process right in your ear. <laughs> Maybe I'll listen to it when I miss you guys. <laughs> you absolutely should. You absolutely should. Um, yeah, so any other week, uh, this new audio equipment would definitely be our headliner of the week. And uh, thank you again. Another shout out to Matt Riley and uh, the International Committee for Journalists, which has helped us get this audio equipment. So thank you so much. Um, we are glad to have it and uh, to not uh, be so quiet. You have to crank up your volume on your car stereo all the way up and then get blasted when you turn it to anything else. Um, but this week we have Elizabeth Thompson in the headliner of the week contest. And so I have to, I have to give it to, to you. Um, you've mastered the art of uh, writing these fact checks for us and also done everything else we've thrown at you, including... 
uh, covering a Trump rally in Greenville and uh, a whole number of other things, but mainly you've uh, been able to um, explain these really complicated topics that are really important uh, to readers. So um, we're going to miss you. And don't forget all those UNC students will get to hear about Medicaid expansion That's right. at parties oh, yeah. this fall. Evangelizing. So you guys the... come up forward to that. <laughs> Spreading so, the message. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so Dawn is our winner today. Yeah, uh, anyone? She wins Headliner of the Week. <laughs> Uh, and that's it for Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader. For Don Vaughn, Elizabeth Thompson, Will Dorn, and Matt Riley, we'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.